Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode, a sterling episode, I'm going to make bold to predict, of Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me today, as customary, is uh, Phil Grant, editor of Almost Daily Grants, the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grants, and uh, at the controls, Eric Whitehead. But this is not just a North American production today. We have telephone, we have um, uh, Jonathan Tepper, who, as you will presently hear, is an Oxford man. Yeah, he uh, went to Oxford and a Rhodes Scholar to boot, and he is the chairman of Rhodes Scholars in Britain. But more relevantly for this production, uh, he is a financial thinker of, of great merit, has been thinking in particular about uh, oligopoly size and the, uh, the end, perhaps, we'll hear more about the reversion to the mean of corporate profits. But we are not just reaching out to Great Britain. We are also privileged to have with us John Hempton, who is the uh, a co-owner and I guess a progenitor of Bronte Capital. John uh, is one of the great short sellers, one of the great thinkers about fraud, not perpetrators, but mind you, the thinkers about fraud. And uh, and he comes to what fraud business, the unmasking business, through uh, very respectable channels, including that of the chief analyst of tax policies in New Zealand. Is there any fraud in tax in New Zealand? I guess it's just a little bit. Uh, but John and John, welcome to you. Seriously, is there any fraud in tax? Do you think there has... Do you think that there's a country without taxes? Well, I was just asking. There's fraud in imposing taxes, I think we can all agree, but uh, be that as it may. Um, Jonathan Tepper, we would like to start with you. I would like to start with you, and so would Evan Lorenz. Evan is such a thoroughgoing analyst. He has actually prepared a question. Uh, so I hope Fantastic. You, yeah, I hope you're prepared for this. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I am a huge admirer of Grant. been reading uh, what you've written for years, and I don't know anyone uh, who's sensible who doesn't subscribe to you. You. So it's a, it's a pleasure to finally be able to speak. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. That's awfully nice to hear. All right, here is the question from Evan. Evan, I'm going to let you read your own question, right? Because okay. you wrote it. Go ahead. <laughs> well, John, your oligopoly report from January was quite eye-opening. The question I have for you is, active managers tend to do best when there's a lot of companies to choose from and a lot of dispersion of returns. Yet you note the number of public companies in the U.S. has halved over the last 20 years. Your report also has an extraordinary conclusion that investing in industries that are not competitive delivers an extra 900 basis return over the market. Passive strategies usually follow market cap weighted indexes, which are usually overweight the big monopolies and oligopolies you wrote about. What does this mean for returns that active and passive management can earn? Uh, sure. So the study that I cited was by uh, Gustavo Grullon. That's G-R-U-L-L-O-N. Uh, he's a professor at Rice University, and he has done an extremely comprehensive uh, report. Uh, you can find it online. It's called Our Industry is Becoming More, More Concentrated. And the, the reason that I approached the problem was that variant perception builds leading economic indicators and leading liquidity indicators, which are meant to sort of tell us where the economy is going in terms of growth, in terms of inflation, forecasting recession. And so a lot of very big family offices and hedge funds are clients of, of variant. And one of the charts that uh, we show every month in our leading indicator watch is the U.S. wage chart. And so I was very interested in you know, why are wages not going up in line with what some of our leading indicators for wages were saying. You know, so you can look at a wide variety of things, whether it's initial unemployment claims or the NFIB survey of small businesses. And they were basically all saying that wages were going to go up and that uh, because of that, you would end up seeing the reverse of wages going up is obviously return on equity and corporate profits going down. So there was a bit of a disconnect. And that's when I started diving in and reading an enormous amount of academic research. The, the piece by uh, Gruyon that I read uh, was uh, by far the best. And it was uh, a truly astounding piece of work. 
He's also done a few other pieces, uh, you know, one specifically on the uh, number of public companies, uh, which uh, you, you referred to as well, to that um, chart uh, you know, that, that we showed where the number of public companies has halved since 1997. Some of that's due undoubtedly to Sarbanes-Oxley, where it's simply just much more costly to be a public company versus a private one. Uh, some of it may also be due to the fact that uh, Silicon Valley now can fund themselves privately, so there's a lot more unicorns that are not public, and you know, we don't know whether the valuation would be the same in the public as a private market. But even beyond that, um, if you actually look at the census data for, for companies um, you know, from the U.S. government, it's showing that there's been a essentially decline in startups. Uh, and it, so it, you know, there's, every year there's a, an exit rate, meaning that companies that don't do well go bankrupt or you know, older people retire and, and close their businesses down. So there's a natural attrition rate uh, going on. But what's worrisome is that the startup level has is, is also um, declined uh, precipitously. And so what's happening is that you have fewer and fewer bigger companies. And I, I started approaching this essentially from a top-down perspective, which was, you know, could, could this be driving the low wages that we're currently seeing? and hence the abnormally high corporate profits. And then, of course, it opens up a host of interesting possibilities from a, a bottom-up uh, standpoint. If you start considering, well, you know, what does this then mean for industries uh, in terms of uh, con industrial concentration? Hey, Jonathan, this is uh, Jonathan Tepper. This is Jim Grant again. Where does this lead you with respect to picking investments? What names come to mind? What opportunities do you see? Sure. So some of the monopolies are obvious um, you know, and don't require a lot of thinking. Some of them are old. So, you know, you can think of, for example, uh, Comcast, you know, uh, consistently wins the vote for the most hated company in America. And, and that's because, you know, people don't really have a choice when it comes to their local cable company. Right? If you provide a high bill and a poor level of service, you know, you'll, you'll have very uh, annoyed consumers, but they can't go anywhere. But Jonathan, are these, are these longs or shorts? Uh, well, this is a funny question. So I, I'm writing a book right now um, called The Myth of Capitalism, and it's called The Myth of Capitalism because I think capitalism involves competition. And I, I think that uh, what we're seeing now, of course, is the absence of competition, and uh, a lot of this is essentially being driven by, by monopolies. So to, to answer your question, you could argue that what's bad for workers, what's bad for society, what's bad for consumers in terms of the absence of choice, in a way, is good for, for shareholders because, you know, if you look at uh, monopolies, they tend to have fairly fat profits. And a, a lot of this you know, really is because uh, the consumer doesn't have a choice. And so if you go back to the term robber baron self, it, it has a medieval origin. There were barons in Europe in the Middle Ages who had roads that went to their lands, and they didn't do anything to keep the roads up and you know repair them and uh, keep them in good condition, but they would extract a toll as people went through. And so if you were a baron that didn't maintain your roads, but still charged a toll, you were a robber baron because you weren't providing a service for the toll. And so obviously translate that to the 19th century, which is when the term entered the U.S. vocabulary, and, and then to the 21st today, these are companies essentially that, you know, like Comcast, that you could argue don't really provide you with a great road um, and still are they good have Are they good investments, out. Jonathan? I mean, if, if it, uh, you mentioned the word yes, obvious, and, and some traders are wont to say that it's uh, if it's obvious, it's obviously wrong, which is, to be sure, glib and not always profitable. But the obvious or self-evident monopolies and oligopolies you have identified, are they buys? Are they sells? Are they, or should, should we be looking elsewhere? Yeah, I would argue that in general, they would be um, would be. Part of this is that 
I'll give my opinion. Yes, uh, I want to hear from New Zealand about this. I'm, I'm, I, I think Britain has spoken very, very well, Jonathan Tepper. No, no. My simple observation here is that there are some areas where governments are allowing mergers that would never have been allowed. And things like the seed business, which is consolidating out of sight with Dow merging with DuPont, that buyer buying Monsanto, that's probably going to be considerably more profitable future because of it. Comcast has been a monopoly forever, and that's why it behaves so badly. It behaves so badly because it can. And your question as an investor is going to be, is this a stronger monopoly than it was 10 years ago or five years ago? Yeah. I got my opinions on that. Um, I'll leave those to other people to decide. But, you know, as a general rule, it seems there are more ways around Comcast than there were. You know, Jonathan and John, um, it's a very interesting thing to think about concentration in this day and age. On the one hand, we read daily or indeed are bombarded almost hourly with the assertion that we live in a time of disruption and vulnerable legacy business models on one hand. On the other hand, we hear, and uh, Jonathan Tepper, you have expressed it very well in this variant perception oligopoly USA report, the title of that being Oligopoly USA, you expected very well that in fact uh, the barriers to entry are rising and that uh, the oligopolies in pace are becoming more disreputable and less disruptable. So, which is it? Are, are business models shakier or are they sturdier? So in, in theory, these business models should be disrupted and should be shakier. But one of the interesting things is that the increase in industrial concentration has had a, a few sources. One of those, obviously, mergers. So as John pointed out, mergers that would not have happened 40 years ago have been allowed. And this really uh, came about with the Reagan merger guidelines in 1982. And it's unsurprising that, you know, you've written very well in grants about the conglomerate merger wave in, in the 1960s. And th those were very strange where you'd end up with a movie studio owning uh, some oil assets and also some ball bearing companies. And you know, these are just like crazy collections of assets. But the reason they did that was that they couldn't actually buy competitors. And so antitrust was enforced. So if you wanted to buy, you had to go further afield and outside of your industry. But in 1982, what happened was the Chicago School took over and they decided that you could buy competitors and that bigger was beautiful. And that it, it, as long as the consumer was promised a, a cheap price that you know the, the consumer welfare was enhanced and so it's unsurprising that since 1982 in every single decade since we've had a merger wave whereas merger waves in fact were quite rare uh, before 1982 and so you know if you think of the um, NCAA sort of uh, brackets right you, you start with quite a lot of competitors and every decade it then means you're getting you know fewer and fewer uh, uh, players you know, until you get down to like the final four the final two and that's pretty much what's been happening in markets on, on the other hand the or not the other hand but rather another factor that's contributed to this is and you also write about this in grants is the increase in regulation and so as the regulatory state gets bigger and is the number of laws on the federal register and in state uh, sort of law books gets bigger, it becomes much more costly for a small company to come in and disrupt and compete. And so what's, you can almost uh, map uh, essentially the increase in concentration uh, tied to the increase in regulation. And well, so this, on, this, on form, this too will pass. And um, all these merger waves, and there were many, of course, before 1982, I, I have on my bookshelf a six-part uh, collection by an author, I think his name is Doing, D-E-W-I-N-G. That's 
PhD is in David, and he wrote about the merger wave of the turn of the 20th century, uh, railroads and uh, other industrial consolidations. And he pointed out, as many have concerning subsequent waves of consolidation, that the economics actually did not work very well, and that it was not what was not meant to be consolidated finally flew apart again. But uh, hey, John Hempton, I, um, I, on behalf of our almost myriad listeners, I want to ask you, as someone who knows a thing or two about selling short and uh, did such great work, for example, only one example on Valiant, the former Valiant, what are you seeing in the way of short sale candidates? And is the incidence of corporate fraud, in your opinion, waxing or waning? Small cap fraud is unbelievably rife, particularly in America. There's a couple of reasons for that, one of which is the cost of, say, having a $500 million company has just gone through the roof. Even if you don't think the Sarbox cost is the real cost, every time you miss earnings, you get an ambulance-chasing lawyer. On the flip side, you have private equity who is willing to buy for very high prices anything that is a plausible $500 million company. The result of which is that the whole bottom end of the US stock market has been denuded of things that actually have real prospects. Because if you had real prospects, the easiest way of monetizing them is to sell them to private equity and as management take a 10% kicker. On the flip side, we've had a bull market that's gone for a very, very long time. And in bull markets, you can sell crap to people and people will buy and people will manufacture crap to be sold. So there's a quite absurd amount of small cap fraud. In fact, if you sort of threw a dart at a list of companies with a, at the bottom end of the Russell, it's probable that you'd hit a fraud. I mean, the Russell has become this sort of absurd index full of, you know, j stocks run by people that I wouldn't have want to have marry my daughter. Large cap fraud is around, and there are some pretty good examples. And I don't really want to say. Well, just, John, just, John, just give us the, don't, don't mention the name, just the tickers, if you would, please. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> right. But what I think has happened is that, you know, the large cap frauds always had a skepticism about their accounts. And so you'd see these things where the market PE was, and I'm showing my age, 16 here, and the ones that were suspect had a PE of 12, and every now and again, they disappear. And now the large cap frauds have a PE above the market because they produce above market growth rates. And, you know, it's easy and easy enough to produce above market growth rates if you're um, making the numbers up yeah. and skepticism has disappeared. I mean, there's also a large amount of just excessive optimism where we have managers who are the maddest people who believe their own bullshit, who think that the rising tide of the last five years pretends that makes that proves that they're a genius, have been buying. And, you know, this is part of the merger wave that the, the maddest people have had the best access to finance and have bought everybody else. And it might work for some of them. And it might work for some of them simply because the competition's disappeared. I mean, I come from Australia, which is the extreme version of what Jonathan Tepper says. We've got two back you know, four banks and they're the most profitable banks in the world. We've got two retailers. They're both very badly run and they're the most profitable grocery retailers in the world. Australia is the land of fat margin oligopoly. And, you know, these merger waves might actually work out in some instances, but in some instances they're going to they're gonna be, mar they're, mar they're, they're going to come apart and we're seeing a few of those and those are being masked by bad accounts. John, would you uh, uh, decipher a, a recent tweet uh, by somebody who signed his name, John Hempton? And the tweet reads as follows. Yeah, okay. That moment when you realize the stock you have owned for a few years and on which you have doubled your money was done on entirely, yeah, bullshit. That's right. We're saying that word, 
twice now. Yeah, look. Bullshit. Now three times. Yes. Analysis. Yeah, look. Come I on. I can't tell you the name of the oh, doctor. Oh, so Evan, tell us the name. We're still selling it, right? We're still selling it, and we'll be selling it for a while because it's a very big position. But any decent intellectual analysis will show that some of the money that you've made in this bull market was made not because you were smart, but because it was a bull market. Well, that's not and the first time. I go through my portfolio, and sometimes I ask myself, was I smart or lucky? And in this case, I was lucky, and I was lucky with bells and whistles on. We're up 115% on a stock that we really should not have invested in, and in which pretty well every paragraph of my original note on it my internal note on it turned out to be wrong. I suspect that that's true of a lot of stuff. <laughs> I, in this case, feel like I had the honesty to admit it to myself. Um, you, don't, you don't have to give the money gonna, back, John. It's, you can still keep the money. Oh, no, no, look, the, I, I, if I had to give the money back, then could you tell me I was short <laughs> ABNM no, it doesn't work that way. when it was bought for $100 billion. Sorry, I was it doesn't work, no. short Charter One Financial nope, doesn't when work. it was bought and it went bust. No. And in those cases, I got intellectual satisfaction because the purchaser lost all their money, but I would swap intellectual satisfaction for a refund. Well, John, this you know that intellectual satisfaction is untaxed. <laughs> my clients won't see it that way. <laughs> well, I want to thank uh, two fabulous guests from across the seas. Jonathan Tepper, who was the author of a really important new study on oligopoly, and uh, John Hempton, who uh, buys low and sells high, and then sells high and buys low, ambidextrously and And I want, and I want to say and one tweets. thing. Because I wasn't here to say it. I've been a subscriber to Jonathan Tepper's research brain. And I'm a dyed-in-the-wool micro look at the facts on the ground guy. And Jonathan Tepper's a dyed-in-the-wool macro look at it from the top guy. And sometimes we align. And when we align, every time we've aligned, we've made money. Lots. Um, when we haven't aligned, I've just let him do his own. Well, let's don't, no, no more suspense. Are you aligned at the moment? And on which ideas are you aligned? We don't have actually a strong version at the moment. In the past, we aligned totally on biotech, where he was looking at red flags from the top down, and I was looking at absolute criminal scumbags lying about science. We aligned before that on shale, and I, I'll let you know, Nick. Okay. In fact, we'll even talk Please about do. it. We'll yeah. be back. Okay. Well, uh, the promise to be back is most heartening. Uh, John and Jonathan, thank you. Um, on behalf of the listeners to Grants, I know they're as delighted as, as we are. So uh, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. This is Jim Grant on behalf of, uh, I don't know, Grant's Interest Rate Observer. I think it's the name of the institution. Thank you so much. Okay. 